As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. We're back for another round of The Phil Hay Show. Welcome along. It's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello. From The Athletic, yes, Phil Hyde. Hello. And the square ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. Thanks to everybody who got in touch with the new Twitter account for the show, at the Phil Hayes Show, sending us your combined 11s from the Deportivo lineup from 2000 in the Champions League and the current day squad. We're going to get Phil's take on that in part two of the show. We'll get into Man City in just a minute or two. First up, though, you can subscribe to The Athletic at the moment for a special price of three ninety nine a month for six months, 40% off the full price of a sub. Analysis, in-depth features, the very best team of football writers around. Phil Hayes, one of them. What's in there this week, Phil? Plenty of reflections on Manchester City and a a really close look at what actually went on at the Etihad and and how tactically that game was won. And also a piece on the 23s who, as we speak, are about to win um, the title in their own division. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to take advantage of the discount. 40% off. That's theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Reaction to the Etihad, and I said some weeks ago, I thought that our best win of the season, it was somewhat speculatively I said it, I will admit, I thought our best win of the season was yet to come. Was that it, do you think, at the Etihad? Probably the best win of Bielsa's entire tenure. Not the biggest win because there have been more wins with with bigger consequences, like, for example, Swansea away last season. But against 10 men there, at a stadium where you would take any sort of result on most days, I mean, there was a period last season... And also at the beginning of this season where City were looking a a little bit flaky, it was almost looking a little bit stale under Guardiola and he was having big problems with a defence who were leaking goals. But their their streak of wins this season has been extraordinary and has has set them up for for four trophies potentially. So I don't think my hopes were particularly high and and that was reflected in the predictions last week. Michael and I both went for a home win and I know you went for, for an away win but probably more out of hope than expectation. And... Clearly, the sending off of Leon Cooper before half-time should have been a pivotal moment which let City cruise to, to the sort of win that they're used to, to picking up. But it, it was, in the second half, a proper tactical masterclass from Bielsa. And, and what was most interesting about it was it was a masterclass in a completely different way to how he normally plays and a completely different different tactical ideas and process and structure to what you expect of a Bielsa team, which is dominance of possession and all-out attacks playing as high up the field as you can and, and implementing a high press. There, there was absolutely none of that because there was no possibility for it to play out in that way. To have come out of that with a one-all draw would have been pretty extraordinary. To nick it at the end was absolutely outstanding. And, and as I say, I think probably the best win of his reign without being the most influential win. And as usual, Bielsa said it was nothing to do with him. Yes, I asked him afterwards how much you spend in training on 10 versus 11 because in that scenario, you you've either got a plan and you've got a strategy or you fall to bits and you and you take a, a bit of a pasting and and he said you know nada we we never do this we don't plan for this so none of this is down to to my influence but from speaking to other people at the club it was quite clear that last week they'd worked on scenarios which if not precisely 10 versus 11 so preempting a, a red card were certainly designed for a scenario where Leeds were very defensive and were finding possession hard to come by and were pretty much under the cosh, which is always likely against City and, and there's always the possibility that you will get overrun at the Etihad. So 
rather than strict man marking, which is obviously the system Bielsa likes to employ, they worked on switching markers, um, which meant that if they were totally defensive, they could avoid overloads, they could avoid getting exposed one-on-one, basically teaching them to know who to switch to and and how to, to shift around at the back so that there were never any concerted gaps to play through. And what, what we discovered as well was that at halftime, the players were essentially told, let City's centre-backs have the ball, particularly John Stones, who just seemed to be, even in the first half, was driving through those, the middle of the pitch, through, through the centre circle, seemed to be on the ball regularly. And then in the second half, just seemed to be on the ball all the time. But the plan of attack was, let him advance through the, the fairly benign, you know, non-dangerous parts of the pitch. And then when he starts to reach the final third, shield him without committing to tackles so that you don't risk him skipping by you and suddenly everything opening up and force him to make lateral passes, force him to go sideways, give him very, very few options, switch markers to make sure that you don't lose men and that nobody suddenly becomes free in a position where they might they might hurt you. And it worked absolutely brilliantly. And it wasn't just the, the structure, it was the discipline and sticking to it. It was the, the fitness and the stamina and being able to do it with 10 players versus 11 and then, and, and this has been a, a trait of Bielsa's team right from the start at Leeds, the clarity of thought on 90 minutes to have that chance to attack and to take it. And that is one of the reasons why he's so big on fitness levels and extreme fitness levels and extreme diet methods and, and everything else is so that the players get to a point physically where even after soaking up so much pressure for so much of the second half, they still have it in their heads to look for the passes or to look for the sort of ball that Alioski was able to pick out for Dallas. And Dallas still has the energy in his legs to cover 30, 40 yards and to slot the ball under Edison. It was a fantastic win and it was far more than just the result. I know the answer to this already, but there's no possibility we're going to try this going forward as a game plan. Is there with 11 on the pitch, soak it up, try and counter-attack. It's not really Bills' style, is it? But there was a bit of me thought as it happened... Maybe we should try this. Like against <laughs> when we play in Liverpool and Man City and Man United and people like that who who can overpower us in terms of the personnel, just to have that as an option. Makes me wonder though if what Phil just said there, if there's just been a bit of an evolution in the style of pressing though. So rather than going and sitting deep doing what I think the cool kids call the low block, is just pressing a bit more smartly, like not overcommitting in yeah. those one versus one scenarios. Cause I think we were possibly guilty of that a little bit earlier in the season where players would get caught the wrong side of their individual marker and then they would just run past them into space. Whereas it feels like, and I don't know if I'm imagining this, you tell me, that we're just doing that a little bit smarter. We're not overcommitting too much in those 1v1s now and not therefore exposing ourselves with space behind. I would say so. If you think back to Liverpool on the first day, you'll remember Robin Koch following Firmino, for example, to the halfway line and and some of the the pundits and the, the commentators who were watching talking about the fact that they were doing this and, and saying how strange it was to see a side expose themselves in that way because Firmino drops deep and suddenly there are gaps that um, Manny or Salah can run into and, and cause you problems. But of course, the way leads are set up, anytime Salah and Manny tried to move into those areas, they had the fullbacks running with them and, and man-marking them. And that you know that is the crux of, of the plan that Bielsa has. I think on Saturday, because they were going to have to soak up so much pressure, it was important that they, they let Stones come to them without letting him get past them. I went through the, the highlights on Monday and particularly watching Stones, you could see that they were quick to close him down, but they were giving him a yard or two in front of them, even when they were trying to block him off, just to make sure that he didn't have any advantage and to make sure that the shape and the structure was all there. To go back to, to what Michael was asking about whether they might do this long term, I don't think there's any chance of that at all. I think Bielsa much prefers the idea that they have 50%, 55%, 60% of possession and play in the way that, that he's trained them for the best part of three years now. But it did show you that they can adapt and they can play in a different way. And and I think what it underlined as well is that for all the criticism of the defensive record under Bielsa and the way that they do defend, his preferred method of doing that is a high press and if not a high press to retain possession. So essentially you limit the chance of the opposition to attack you. I think they can do the opposite. It's just that they choose not to, and that's not the that is not generally the the plan of attack. And I thought it was it was quite funny that beforehand on BT Sport there was a lot of talk between Ferdinand and Lescott about the fact that Leeds can't defend and the fact that they might come to the Etihad and take a pace. And I think it was Lescott who said basically said if if I was a defender in this squad, I wouldn't enjoy it very much because I would know that I'd be at risk of us conceding three or four goals which is totally contrary to what the players at Leeds actually tell you about how much they do enjoy it. They're all 100% invested in this. 
and they all see how it does work. But then you have a game in which it's perfectly apparent that if Bielsa is forced to employ a defensive structure and a strict defensive structure, he can do it. He will do it. But essentially, you can't have everything at one time. If you... If you're going to be in a game where you're defending deeply, you're not going to attack at will like Bielsa's team do. If you attack at will, you're not going to have a, a strict and deep defensive structure. They can't be all things to, to all men. And once again, it's just a case of the truth will out. I think if you look at Leeds, you see that they are a very, very good team. I think sometimes, though, with some of the pundits, that's what they want from Leeds. Perfection. Yeah, they set the bar too high. And then when we meet the bar or pass it, they, they shift it higher again. Jolian Lescott, Michael, is he a clown? <laughs> I mean, I think he's is. You can say yes. If social you want. media posted in the past has shown that he is when he he accidentally tweeted that picture of his car, didn't he? When when he was facing criticism on Twitter, which was not a good look for him, I don't think. But I think you've got it right there, Dan. I think people are having to shift what they were claiming at the start of the season now about Leeds, who saying, "Oh, you can't survive playing in that style." And then it's been obvious for a while we have survived. So then it's well, you can't move on to the next level playing that. And then we beat Man City, and it's like, well. They'll probably struggle next season, and you. Yeah, it's 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 the constant can kicking down the road, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh well, look at Sheffield United. Well, we're not like Sheffield United. It's a completely different example. Just actually, one of the other criticisms in there you've reminded me is that um, Man City's B team. That's that's one of the other things. Well, you didn't even beat Man City's proper team, but you you can only beat what's in front of you. And what was in front of us was a four hundred million pound Premier League squad. It's the fallback argument for anybody who doesn't really want to give Bielsa any credit. I think, and you're right. If Leeds were knocking on the door of the Europa League, which they yet might if things go wildly in their favour, you know, back into the season, then there would probably still be the element of an argument of, well, if they were tighter defensively, then they could be top four. <laughs> yeah, and champion, if you were, Champions League. If, yeah. if you were top four, well, if, if you were tighter defensively or you didn't do this, then you could potentially win the league. Like you say, incredibly high bar for somebody coming into the Premier League with what was predominantly a championship squad with, albeit £100 million of players added to it in the summer, but four players as opposed to a team of players and, and nothing like the depth that Guardiola has over at, at the Etihad. It was just an outstanding performance and tactically, I think again, it demonstrated why somebody like Guardiola looks at Bielsa and respects him so much because he can he can do that. And I was saying in the piece I did after the game, you go back to the game between them in 2011 when Guardiola was at, at Barcelona and Bielsa was in charge of Athletic Bilbao and, and Guardiola talking about Bielsa's players being beasts and, and totally shocked about the way that Bill Bow came at them in, in that 2-0 draw. And he probably knew deep down that if he and Bielsa crossed paths often enough, at some point it was going to be his turn and at some point he was going to get done over. But not like that and not in, in those circumstances. And again, I think next time we stagger into the, the discussion about can Bielsa form a defence, you'll you'll have that game to, to fall back on. And let's be honest, you'll have last season to fall back on as well when the defence were very, very good. The £100 million thing as well that's been thrown around this week, there was the clip of Chris Boyd going around kind of saying with the money the Leeds have spent, they should be doing better. It is a bit of a misnomer as well because there's only, of that £100 million, there's only actually Rafinha who's played a substantial part of this season in the first team. Everyone else has been in and out and not they've not contributed as much as we probably hoped they would, as much as I think Llorente has, has been brilliant in the last few weeks. It's not as if 100 million flew out the door last summer either. You know, the, the fees are, are all amortised. There'll be clauses involved. It's it's never an exact science, as in this is this is how much was spent. But it was a big outlay. I don't think we, we should pretend otherwise. It, you just have to reflect that the squad, in essence, stayed the same. There were these additions round about, but the core of the team and the core of the squad is pretty much the core of the squad and the team that Bielsa had in the championship. And, and that's why on a day like Saturday, there's a lot of talk about how somebody like Dallas has improved and, and others as well, because he has taken an awful lot of them with him. He, he, he didn't dispense with them at the end of last season and he didn't say to Leeds, right, OK, promoted to the Premier League, so I now want a recognisable Premier League squad. He just said, I, I will work with lots of these players again, but we need to add roundabout. And yes, the, the additions they made were expensive, but more and more these days, I struggle to see how in the Premier League you can buy anybody of any quality without having to go somewhere over ten, fifty million pounds. And you contrast it with what's happened at, let's say, West Brom, where you know they were on our coattails for a lot of, of last season, and now they're miles offers, miles offers, and a lot of their squad is being written off as just not good enough for the Premier League. Similar with Fulham, who've really struggled to to bridge the gap. So you you can see in the difference between league places that is Bielsa's genius. And you can spend hundred million as Fulham showed. Last time you can spend 100 million and be relegated without a fight. There's no guarantee of success by spending 100 million pounds. And 
we've done it an absolute canter. I'm fairly nonplussed by it all, really, because if if Leeds were in the position that West Brom are in or, or Fulham, you would be questioning the impact of the money they spent last summer. We would be debating why it is that Bielsa has found the transition a struggle, although I think we would still be saying, well, when you get promoted, it's never as simple as just cruising into the league and finishing top half. But then here Leeds are doing it or, or threatening to do it. And it seems to me that in managerial terms, you, you've had... Wills and, and Nuno who've come up and, and settled in very well and, and made a great impact. Um, I know they've struggled this season, but certainly the first two two seasons they had, the transition was, was very, very strong. But if you go back over 10, 15 years, even longer, how many coaches have, have coped better jumping from one league to the next? And, and how many have coped better while at the same time having various aspects of the play criticised? I, I always say this, as you get further down the line and if we assume that Bielsa stays then there will come a point at which you want to see certain things eradicated, you want to see certain things fixed, you want to see the team become more competitive. But for season one, I honestly think now that they've got a win over City in the bag, they've pretty much accomplished everything that they could conceivably have accomplished. And I know European football is still kind of there and sort of hanging hanging in the distance. But was anybody really expecting that? I mean, I, I certainly wasn't. Mm. Um, <laughs> looking at Wolves actually as, a, as an example <laughs> looking at Wolves as an example they are a good example because they kind of hit the heights of European football and now they've plateaued and they are at that point of their evolution where you think well where do they go next how do they progress from this point because they seem to have if they're not gone backwards they're at least treading water because they're what they're seven points off us now mm-hmm. in 12th and it leads me to the question with Leeds is how good do you think this side can get and specifically about Stuart Dallas, because, you know, he was the star of the show on Saturday. How much better can he get? The honest answer is I don't know. You can't be sure, really. But what I would say is that very few of these players are at the age where you'd feel that they've 100% peaked. I think most of them have got at least a season or two where you could conceivably expect them to get better. And, and given the way that everybody has improved on Bielsa's watch, it would be a bit naive to suggest that this is as much as they can do. I, I think they can go further again. I, I think defensively, Bielsa will benefit next season if he's in a position where he can actually choose regularly from four centre-backs, for example. I think he'll benefit defensively if he has a proper left-back to use. If they make the right additions to the squad, it'll be a little bit deeper, it'll be a little bit stronger. And they they tend to get better collectively, this group, or they always have under Bielsa. You see individual improvement in certain players, but the the improvement in the main is right across the board. It's it's the team that improves and the team that gets better. And I think that comes back to the fact that Bielsa has always worked with a kind of collective mindset. He's not big on individuals. He's not big on teams relying too heavily on individuals, which is why it took us all quite a while to get used to. I guess that the situation you're used to previously with managers was that you would lose, I don't know, Snodgrass or McCormack or somebody of, of that ilk. Chris would say in the season where, where he scored 30 goals and you would see that as a as a setback, as a problem and sometimes the head coaches you spoke to would see it as a setback or a problem as well. With Bielsa, you would turn up to press conferences and say to him, you don't seem to have any centre-backs and he would say, oh, we've got loads of centre-backs in the academy, it's fine. And then they'd win on the Saturday and, and everybody moved on and you'd lose goal scorers, you'd lose midfielders, you'd lose wingers and none of it ever seemed to matter, none of it ever seemed to upset him or to bother him it was just a case of well that's the whole point of having a squad and and having under 23 so as I say I I think individually the players can improve a game but I think what will be more on his mind will be the idea that the team improves and and the team looks better. It's funny isn't it he's calmed the hysteria, that's one thing he's done, He's, he's shown us another way that we don't have to be panicking about the absence of one player or an injury or a suspension, it's probably going to be all right. The only one that you might accept from that is Calvin Phillips, who when he's out of the team, we look worse for it. Definitely. But he never seems unduly stressed about that either. And he's never kind of shaped at any point to actively move in the transfer market to do anything about it. I mean, I've been saying the last few weeks that they are looking at cover for Phillips. But I mean, we'll we'll come on to this shortly, but the mentions and dispatches of Forshot in training sound really, really positive all of a sudden. And he played in a bounce game last weekend against York City, went through 60 minutes, leads 23s are, are at Aston Villa tonight. Very good chance, I think, that he'll feature in that. And I'm I'm starting to think, well, if Forshaw does actually get back to the level that he needs to be at, and if he does become an option for Bielsa, 
Is Bielsa going to want cover for Phillips, given that he always thought of Forshaw as a player who would compete for that area, but but was actually, actually had the skill set to do it, you know, as opposed to asking a centre-back to step in there or somebody else to kind of moonlight. Forshaw was a was ready-made competition for Phillips. So therefore, do you actually need to do cover? I mean, these things are always fluid and, and it will depend on, on how Forshaw develops. But even with Phillips, it's never been the case that you get the sense of Bielsa panicking. And you you said there about, you know, educating people or or at least teaching us not to get so stressed about things. I think one of the reasons why it's worked so well for Bielsa is that everybody has been able to understand what he's doing and everybody has been able to go with it. And when he seems relaxed about the fact that big players are out or or that he's having to go for, for makeshift options, rather than people panicking and people thinking this is going to be a disaster, we've all got ourselves into the mindset, well, it'll probably work. And I think that was driven partly by the flying start he had in 2018, but also he's just been a very, very easy guy to to believe in, very, very easy guy to trust. And as I say, it's it's been one of the driving forces behind this, the fact that the support do seem to think that, that he 100% knows what he's doing. So maybe if we don't buy cover for Phillips and we only get, only get one central midfielder, push the boat out a little bit more, if we've got a bigger budget for that central midfielder. Who could it be? I can't think. Who, who do you think we should maybe go for in that 8-10 role that you keep talking about? But there must be people in Italy. Are there not people in Italy, Syria, looking for a, a bit of a jump? You could tweet us actually about this. Who should we? Etc. <laughs> Etc. Et yes. Rodri, go to Paul, blah, blah, blah. One of the specifics about the Man City game, let's just return to that briefly. The Cooper red card, it's the big talking point that steered the shape of the game. In the end, it actually probably made the game more exciting and the climax of it in particular because we were down to 10 men and it magnified the scale of the victory. Was it a red? I think it probably was, yes. Um, the, I, I know, I know. The, the, I'm, Judas, you Leeds hating I'm Judas. Just, I'm, I'm just going to caveat that by saying so was Bulldogs in the game against Sheffield United. And that that is the problem, isn't it? That if, if you look at Cooper's challenge and the thing with VAR is that you get it in slow motion and these things always look worse in slow motion. But it's it's not under control and he does get the ball first, but he does then go through Jesus' knee, you know, his, his boot is at, at kind of thigh height and it's uh, it's not a great tackle. And you, on the basis that Leeds haven't bothered appealing, you can tell that they don't think there's there's any grounds to, to contest it. But in no way was it worse than what Baldock did to Tyler Roberts at Ellen Road. And I'm still confused about the fact that there didn't seem to be any review of that and that Baldock didn't even get a yellow card. And yes, he was concussed and they had to be careful with him, but it seemed like there was far more attention on the concussion than there was on the challenge that had caused it in the first place, which was basically a two-footed scissor challenge. The good thing about Cooper's red card was that it came after the goal. If it had come at nil-nil, I think it would have been far more difficult because City probably wouldn't have felt that same level of desperation. They probably wouldn't have felt that quite the, the same level of pressure. You know, coming so close to half-time, Bielsa obviously made the immediate switch, so he took Bamford off and, and went for strike, which was actually very clever in the same way as Robin Koch replacing Tyler Roberts was. It, it meant that there was he was retaining the pace in the team, um, Rafinha and, and Costa, so that, as he likes to do, he made sure that there was going to be some attacking threat in the, the tiny, tiny periods that Leeds had in, in City's final third. I, I was looking at the stats afterwards and only 9% of the second half was played out in, in City's final third. I mean, it was all down at, at the other end of the pitch, but it meant the Leeds were set up to attack if, if they got the, the opportunity. But also, you know, he made that sub, but then he got them in the dressing room really quickly. The timing of it was almost helpful in as much as he, he could get them together and say, right, OK, the switching of markers, the strategy with the centre-backs, this is what we're going to do. You know you know how it should play out. Might not work, but we know how we're going to apply ourselves against this team. So again, it wasn't as if it happened on 51 minutes and he was he was trying to direct this from the sidelines. It all fell into place. But a red card, yes, I think it was. As for next season then, Norwich basically up and barring a collapse, Watford are going to follow them in the automatics and then it's going to be one from Swansea, Brentford, Bournemouth and Barnsley. Who would you fancy for that? I have no idea. No idea. Do you know what's great? We don't have to care either. No, that's it, isn't it? I don't know about saying they all look much of a muchness, but I think they all seem to have good days and bad days. If um, Tony starts scoring goals for Brentford in the playoffs as he has been in the regular season, then it, it should be them. But they've... They've been a bit hot and cold and they seem to me again, like in the same way as last season, they've gone cold at the point where they, the door was really opening for them and, and if they'd found a, a spot of form at that point, I think they'd, they'd have challenged Watford really strongly for, for second place. Bournemouth, I didn't much fancy after they went for Woodgate, but they are starting to turn it on and they have very good players down there. And Barnsley just looked like a bit of a, 
a bit of a sort of understated powerhouse uh, who keep going and keep going. And I'd be pleased for somebody like Moat if they were to go up. But in terms of who I fancy out of those four, I have no idea. I kind of like Barnsley, just because the other playoff teams and, to be honest, most of the rest of the division are also desperate to get out of there. And I feel like Barnsley at the start of the season probably weren't that bothered. They would have been quite happy with mid-tables. I'd see them go up instead. Just be quite funny. Barnsley away is quite a good away day, is it not? Well, that's the thing. It's I've just had a... some quite bad experiences there, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> good in a footballing sense, if you know what I mean. Just thinking about Brentford, what we want to happen there is obviously they get into the playoffs, they're in the semi-finals, Thomas Frank opens his mouth and then they fail again. That'd be nice. It wasn't him in the playoffs last time, was it? It was one of his players, but he, he obviously... Obviously ran into a brick wall by saying what he said before Leeds went down there. They should be the best of the sides and they should be the, the team most suited to doing it. But I felt that last season, uh, even when the playoffs started, I, I couldn't see beyond them. And, and they it just went all wrong for them in the playoff final. Fulham, Fulham were really switched on that day and, and tactically very, very clever. So, as I say, I, I find that really, really difficult to call. I think in part because I'm not following it at all. I'm, I'm looking at the results. But in terms of you know how the teams play and, and, and what they tend to do, vaguely across it, but not enough to make a, a clear call. Meh. Um, when it comes to the Premier League, who's going down then? Obviously, Sheffield United are going down. West Brom, a little bit of a spurt of form now, but possibly too much of a of a gap to bridge there, particularly with their running. They've got a, a lot of what you might term in inverted commas, big teams. And then do you still fancy Fulham to go down? Because they are starting to look like their goose is cooked. They had a chance. They gave themselves a a chance, but four defeats on the bounce as I think killed them now. The win for Newcastle at Burnley was crucial for both Fulham and West Brom in the, the open water in front of them. Even though for Fulham, you're only talking six points. That is a big margin at this stage. And, and they suddenly look again like it's going to be difficult to claw in anywhere near enough to get themselves back in the mix. There was a period where I was saying I don't see Fulham going past 30 points and then suddenly the form developed. But again, you're starting to wonder now from the last six games, will they get many more than four or five? I'm I'm honestly, honestly not sure. I think it'll be the bottom three as it stands. West Brom are the only one of the bottom three that can still theoretically catch leads, I think, due to the combination of fixtures. They might not be able to. But given, you know, the the terrified mindset of Leeds fans, and we talked about the hysteria there. I'd like you to complete the sentence for me if you could, Phil. If West Brom catch Leeds, I'll do what? Resign instantly. This is like fighting talk at the very end where you have to defend the, the indefensible. Oh, I, I mean, but it's not going to happen, is it? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> you've, got my, you've got Michael to my right who will say potentially. Even I'm ruling it out at this point. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Phil wrote about Deportivo La Coruña, that game, uh, recently. So he's been set a challenge. And remember, this is this is just a little bit of fun, okay? Because, you know, people tie themselves up in knots having arguments about this online. It's just a bit of fun. Trying to pick the best 11 from the team that faced Deportivo and the current squad. Are we saying, just to position this, do you think the Deportivo game was the peak of David O'Leary's team? I think the Deportivo game was the best performance they had under him and it definitely was the peak when you look at what came next and, and the way they, they started to, to tail off. I did a piece with Nigel Martin where we sat and watched back through the game and the first thing to say, the first thing that jumped out to both of us and also to some of the guys on um, the desk who subbed the piece and were looking through the highlights was the way in which the Champions League has changed when it comes to the atmosphere. There was just so much electricity about that game and I don't know whether I'm just getting old but it made me think that back then even for games in which you had no dog in the fight, because I wasn't writing about Leeds at that point, there was just so much more interest in it. You were more naturally interested in it. I don't know if it was potentially because it was on ITV and um, it was a, a bit more accessible. But the Champions League then just felt like a better competition than it does now. And I can't quite put my finger on exactly why that was. But the whole event and the buzz in the stadium, it was it was just like proper electricity. And I was saying to Martin as we were watching them come out the tunnel, 
you can see him with a bit of a sort of nervous smile on his face because he's thinking, this is incredible. Like, it's, it's saying you couldn't hear any of the chanting. You've just got this wall of noise radiating down onto the pitch. And I don't know, maybe people disagree. Maybe people think the Champions League has is, is improved and, and is better now. But I feel as if that period, that four or five years round about then was the competition at its best. I suspect part of that atmosphere was because we were there almost as first timers. You know, it was a new experience for us and maybe some of the more seasoned Premier League, um, sorry, Champions League teams might have viewed it differently. You know, those dead rubbers in some of the group games and all the rest of it. So there was kind of that, that the newness of it. But I suspect it's because, and you've seen it with the way that the, the competition has gone recently, I suspect it's because it's all being geared towards keeping the European Super League at bay now. It's all geared towards the big teams with the most resources. And I think the finances over the last 20 years have cemented the, the positions of those teams a lot more. So I think they felt like there was more opportunity back then, maybe. It feels like a corporate event now, as opposed to the real, real peak of European competition. It is still the peak of European competition in the sense that you've got the best clubs in it. But back then, it, it was just the trophy to win. And as Martin was saying, as they got to the, the point of that quarterfinal, it was impossible not to think that you might win it because you were going through the groups to really, really difficult groups. I always say, when you look, back at that run to the semi-finals look at who Leeds actually played in the, the early rounds and look at the teams <laughs> Crazy. Who, the teams who should have should have knocked them out I mean there was the famous quote from Victor before the um, the Deportivo midfielder before the first leg that we've pulled the the weakest side here and Martin said he, was, he wasn't wrong you know on paper he, he was pretty much right we had no Champions League experience there weren't many players in the team who had, like as a squad they had no Champions League experience and there weren't many players individually who'd played in it before but he also said that that made them really dangerous because the whole thing was just a huge adventure and at no point did they ever feel overawed by it no, at no point did they ever feel like they were out of their depth probably with the exception of the pasting that they got from Barcelona it was just one of those runs that you wanted to keep going for as long as possible and then Deportivo come to Ellen Road and get absolutely smashed and suddenly after that you think about it's the semi-finals next, and if we are playing like that, then genuinely, why not? We'll get on to picking the side in a second. Do you remember Ellen Road that night, Michael? I think seeing Ellen Road in a Champions League game as well is is interesting because it still looks well. It looks as it does now. It looks kind of shabby even back then, and it was a it was a amazing the atmosphere in there. And it was I think I cried when the Champions League theme came on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny the Champions League music because I remember when it started. It was the first time you hear it. It was like a a sort of st- almost a strange out of body experience. You're like, yeah, I'm a, are we? Are we? We're in the Champions League. This is weird, isn't it? And then by the time, it, because you come to associate memories with it as the you build through the games, that by the end, I think you're right. You start feeling like, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. I, I remember. I remember reading the great article. I think in the Guardian with one of the women who was in the choir who recorded the anthem, and she was saying, like, you know, after about six or seven years, I was, I was just like. Please let me never hear this ever again. So they had to sing it over and over and over. And then, you know, for years afterwards, and still now it's still going and they're never going to replace it, are they? I no. am bored of it now, I have to say. I think it's true what Phil was saying about it feeling like a, a slightly, maybe it's, maybe it's a complete Leeds bias in there because we've been so far from it for these years. But I think it being on ITV did make a difference because it meant you were getting audiences of 10, 12 million people watching those games. Whereas now on BT, you're getting a million, two million at the best case scenario. Also, I think things have changed in European football. If if you go back 20 years to that point, your most powerful clubs financially were still in Spain and, and elsewhere. And I guess the chances of an English club winning it were reduced. Whereas now, there are very few clubs who are anywhere near as rich as City and you've got Abramovich down at Chelsea and Liverpool have, have done well in the competition. It, it felt as if English clubs winning it would be something out of the ordinary. Whereas now, you you start every season thinking, well, there's a, a pretty strong chance given right. You know, given who's in it. Because we've been doing um, stuff from, what is it, 30 years ago for the Matchball 30, haven't we? And we just covered the um, the Liverpool 4-5 game on our podcast. And it's when they returned to European competition. And, and looking into that, into the history of it, it actually took a good 10 years. So you're talking about 2001 for the English UEFA coefficient to get high enough to give uh, a better opportunity to more English sides to get in there and start winning stuff. Because the coefficient fell away when English teams were out yeah. banned during the second half of the 80s. So it actually took that 
10 years for it to, to become cemented a game where England was a real powerhouse in European football. I remember that being one of the arguments for why we should be pleased that Scum had beaten Bayern Munich. I just thought, no, no, I can't you, do it. I can't do it. Oh, you, you get this all the time in, in Scotland that you, you want Celtic to beat AC Milan because of the coefficient. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get to the task at hand then. Yes, are- th- thank you for this. When you when you sent it over, I thought, what a great idea. And then I looked at people going at each other on Twitter <laughs> and I thought, you wank. <laughs> but anyway. So the other question is, are we putting a manager in charge of this? So what's the context? Are we putting well, Bielsa or David O'Leary in charge or should we just leave it as a as a, an, an ethereal thing without No, let's, let's pick a coach. And also, I'm going to do this from the starting lineups of the game against Deportivo and and Manchester City at the weekend, rather than doing the entire squad. Although, if either of you two want to do the entire squad, um, go for gold. But as much as I wanted to ram Jacob Burns in there, I'm going to exclude him on the basis that he was on the bench um, against Deportivo. But I'm going to go 11 versus 11 and pick the best 11 out of those two lineups. Okay, so there's a bit more uh, bit more context then. And it is worth adding, there were six subs on the night for that Deportivo game. We were allowed seven. So let's let's do the lineup for the Deportivo game. So we've got Nigel Martin in goal, Ian Hart, Olivier Decor, Mark Viduca, Harry Kewell, Lee Bowyer, Smith, Mills, Matteo, Batty and Ferdinand. So that's uh, that's in number order. So they're not necessarily in position order, but it was a 4-4-2 by the looks of it. Yes. Um, and you've got, so uh, Smith up front with Viduca, Kewell on the left, Bowyer. Bowyer on the right. On the right there. Midfield was Batty and Decor. And then you're back four of Hart, with Mills at right back and Matteo and Ferdinand at centre back, is that right? Yeah. Yes, that is correct. Okay. Uh, and the bench there: Paul Robinson, Gary Kelly, Jason Wilcox, Eric Backer, Jacob Burns, and Alan Maybury. A couple of notable absentees from that lineup, which may actually make this a little bit more interesting: no Lucas Radabey and no Jonathan Woodgate. Radabey was certainly injured at the time, and also Gary Kelly on the bench, who would have been a, a fair choice to start again um, ahead of Danny Mills on the right hand side. But yes. I'm going to exclude them because I think it'd be really difficult to leave out Radaby, but because he didn't play on the night, we will just go with the 11. So that's your Champions League lineup. The 11 to choose from from the Man City game. Melier in goal, uh, the back four of Ailing, Urente, Cooper, and Alioski. Phillips, deep midfielder with Helder Costa, Tyler Roberts, Stuart Dallas, and Rafinha in front of him, and Bamford up front on his own. So are you picking a formation for this? Because we've got two contrasting formations, Phil. I was very tempted to go 4 3 3. I was tempted to go 4-4-2 to shoehorn various people in. I suppose the thing to say here is that the team has to show some sort of balance, doesn't it? Otherwise, it's going to get beaten, which is to say that I don't think you can pick both David Batty and Calvin Phillips in midfield. I think it's the sort of thing you'd be tempted to do to see how much carnage they could cause. (laughs) But it's also the sort of thing that we get Gareth Southgate criticised after a a standard World Cup qualifier. So I won't be doing that. I think I'm going to go... 4-4-2 with a forward in behind our number nine. Right, go for it then. In goal. Okay. Nigel Martin over Ilan Melier. I wonder, actually, and I'd like to think that in 10 years' time, this might be a far more difficult decision and that Melier might have gone on to be the, the outstanding keeper that a lot of people think he's he's going to be. I think we should just say as well that we're talking about different eras, so the things that players are asked to do these days are slightly different which is one way of saying that I suspect that Melier's distribution is potentially better than the Martins. I suspect he's a, a bit more comfortable in possession and, and on the ball. But Martin was one of the outstanding goalkeepers, English goalkeepers of, of his generation. And I don't think it would be in any way credible to say that if you were picking between a peak Nigel Martin and Melier as he is at, at the age of 21, you'd be going for the, the Frenchman. I, I can understand the bravery of people who might want to do that. But anybody who'll play with Martin will, will tell you that he was such a safe line of defence. He, um, he was brilliant, was Nigel oh, Martin. Fantastic. And and he was unlucky to be in the same era as David Seaman. Otherwise, I think his um, his England caps would have gone far beyond the number he, he actually he actually gained. But there's no way in which you're you're not picking Martin out of those pair. Talk us through your defence then. Who's your back for? I was reliably informed last night that I was going to be killed if I picked Danny Mills at right back. But as it happens, I would have gone for Ailing anyway between the two. I think again, I mean, Mills was, was quite an, an attacking fullback, but I think again that the, the game's changed slightly in the way that fullbacks are used and, and the difference that they make. And I think the power and the impetus that you get from Ailing, the, the driving runs from him, are so effective and and so important. I, I don't think defensively Ailing is, is always perfect, but I think that's partly down to the fact that there's the, 
the kind of imbalance of a defender being asked to do so much going forward. But with Ailing, you get overlaps on the right, you get driving runs through the middle. He's really, really good at the third man runs, whether he's the third man or whether he's setting them up. I would absolutely have him on the right side. And he's a lot more likeable, quite frankly, given recent evidence. Well, you said that. In my opinion. I think uh, Gary Kelly at this stage as well, I know he was on the bench, but his peak era was probably a few years before this, wasn't it? He'd had his fair share of injuries by this stage yeah. and was not he was not quite at the, at the peak of his power. So I think he would, in his prime, Gary Kelly would be a fair shout here instead of Ailing. But yeah, I'd have gone with Ailing as well. Rio Ferdinand at centre-half. Rio Ferdinand. I was chatting to Martin and saying that Ferdinand got the only the, the second ever 10 out of 10 in the Yorkshire Evening Post that had been given that night. And when you watch the game back, he's ridiculously good. I mean, you, you're seeing the birth of a new type of centre-back on that evening. And there were other properly world-class um, centre-backs across Europe. But Martin said he was as good as anybody I ever played behind internationally or, or at club level. It, it was the fact that he was basically a player with the skill of a midfielder and the vision of a midfielder, but all the defensive attributes that you needed and also the height to be useful in the air. Martin was talking about the way that Fernand loved to drop the shoulder as a, a striker came running at him and then just kind of waltz out from the edge of the box into midfield and, and start spreading the ball around. I know there was all the antipathy about him going to, to Manchester United, but he was absolutely beyond exemplary that night. It was just peak, peak Ferdinand at, at, at that stage in his career. That's the disadvantage that the Champions League team has in that it's over 20 years ago and we know what they all went on to do since and we've discovered more about their personalities since. So it probably stands Mills, Ferdinand and Kuehl at a slight disadvantage, but we'll try and take it on the merits of their footballing abilities, presumably. Yeah. Well, Nigel was saying that you kind of have to do that because it's wrong to look back now and say Rio Ferdinand went to Old Trafford, therefore he wasn't actually that good that, that night because he was he was so good that he was basically faultless. And he he said as well, our best player was Harry Kuehl. There's no two ways about it. And Martin has been critical of him going to Galatasaray, quite critical of the way that the, the Liverpool move was done as well. But it's the same thing. You, you can't pretend because of that that Kuehl wasn't the player he, he was. And Eddie Gray will always say, probably... Eddie always picks out Stephen McPhail as one of the most gifted players he, he ever coached. But Kuehl's right behind him. He says Kuehl's ability and, and his understanding of the game was just ridiculous. You know, you just pretty much let him go and he knew exactly what to do. Other centre-back then next to Ferdinand is... I'm going to go for Liam Cooper. No, that's interesting. I'm going to go for Liam Cooper because this will cause a, a few ructions, but it's a combination of factors. I think for starters, Cooper would be a very, very good captain in this team, not only on the pitch, but but off it as well. But also, given who I'm going to pick as manager, you're going to need centre-backs who can play with the ball and can distribute it well. And whatever whatever anybody says about Cooper's defending, and I actually think it's a lot better than he gets credit for, his use of possession is absolutely excellent and has been from the point at which Bielsa came in and, and implemented a, a totally different style. And in, I, I, I feel guilty leaving out Don Matteo. I know there are people who will probably look at Llorente at the moment and wonder if there's a better defender in there, and perhaps there is. But I think on the basis of the consistency I've seen from Cooper over three seasons and now in the Premier League, I'm going to go for him. I'd say anecdotally, the responses that we received to putting this one out there on Twitter was that most people went for Ferdinand and Urente, I would say, the, the majority. That was kind of where I'd gone with it as well. It was It's based on a very small sample size, it's worth saying, with Urente because we've, not, we've only seen him actually play well in probably the last four or five games for us. So it, it's, it's not based on much. To go back to Ferdinand... He is the awkward one in there because he was he was pretty much the first name on my team sheet. When I was looking through these these squads, you think, well, yeah, him and then the next one, you kind of get to Harry Kuehl and you go, oh, God. <laughs> but <laughs> Nigel Martin was like, of the of the three first names on my team sheet, Nigel Martin was the only guilt-free one that I had on yeah, there. Yeah, putting an asterisk next to them. <laughs> yeah, did this with a gun to my head kind of thing. Yeah, who's your left back? Uh, left back is Ian Hart. Uh, I mean, there isn't really a left back at Leeds at the moment, so it's, uh, it, it's an easy pick. But how well do you remember his free kick yeah. that night yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean Jesus Christ it's like 20 yards out and he hits it with all the power in his boot and fine if it's a bit of a daisy cutter and flying along the ground because he can kind of keep it down but to send it under the crossbar like that with that much power from that distance is so difficult Martin reckoned that he was every bit as good with free kicks as Beckham he said the problem was that Beckham had all the showbiz and all the celebrity status so people paid far more attention to him. But he, he said in our dressing room, we were of the opinion that we'd as happily have Ian Hart on them as we would Beckham, even if we were we were offered Beckham. Um, and he, he said he, he felt that Deportivo's keeper that night got his wall wrong by putting one too many men in it, which meant that when Hart hit the ball, he, he wouldn't have got sight of it until 
very, very late notice. He said in, in that situation, and if the ball gets hit so well, if you don't see it being struck, you've got very, very little chance of saving it. But as the caveat, he said, rather him than me. That's, that's a really interesting bit of information because I never knew you could have too many men in your wall for the keeper. Well, if you look at what happens, Harry Kuehl stands next to, adds an extra player. So you effectively have a wall of six. And as Hart goes to hit it, he pushes the player next to him and say, not physically pushes him, but just leans into him, a little nudge to create a little bit more space. But Martin reckoned that, that it was best to go with a wall of four because it just gave you that little bit of extra sight. And yes, it took a man out the wall who would potentially block the ball. But if the ball comes past the wall or over the wall or, or goes under it, then you're not going to see it. Unless it comes straight at you, you're not going to see it in time. And you're not even allowed to stand next to the wall anymore, are you, in theory, anyway? The rules uh, no, that, that. that is right. That is right. But this this was then. So, yes, uh, Ian Hart is an absolute shoo for me at left back. On the basis of Bielsa being my manager for this, I actually went Stuart Dallas here. Because the thought of the prospect of Ian Hart having to go man for man and chasing someone for an entire game just terrified me a little bit that he would be isolated with people as well. Because <laughs> for all his attacking prowess, he did really, really struggle when people ran at him. He did. But, he did but, to an extent. But I also think history has been a little bit more unkind to him than perhaps it should have been. Because he. Well, there were times, and I, I mean, my abiding memory of Ian Hart getting outpaced is with Kieran Dyer bearing mm. down on him. And did he get beat as often as we think he did? He maybe didn't. He was maybe when, in the period we started to struggle, people started to exploit it a bit more. Whereas we were, in the, if you go back to that Deportivo game, we're at our kind of swaggering best in this game and they're, they're not particularly running it as at all. He would also have had a Bielsa pre-season, uh, so that might have made a difference, um, and Mulderball and, and everything else. But you, you're right in the sense that if it hadn't been Hart, it would have been Dallas for me that I would have, I would have picked there. Hopefully he wouldn't have been too distracted thinking about his percentage from Jack Clark. That's all. That's all I, I would hope for. Ouch. <laughs> I think that's another thing that colours people's memories of footballers though, isn't it? Well, it's funny when you go through the Champions League side, considering we are saying it was the peak of that era and the... You know, Probably the best performance of any Leeds team since Wilkinson. Would that that be yeah. fair? Even and now, a bunch I, of knobheads. Even now, <laughs> there, there are a considerable number of of them. Alan Smith, obviously, further up the team as well. Harry Kuehl, who, if not persona non grata at Leeds, are somewhere in that ballpark. It, it is really strange, but I think that that is quite indicative of the fact that it fell apart very, very quickly after that. Midfielders, then let's go down the centre of the park. Then who have you got? Well, the reason I'm kind of doing a. 4 4 one, one is just to try and squeeze in who I want to squeeze in. On the right-hand side, it's got to be Boyer because his form in that Champions League run was extraordinary for a few reasons. Firstly, because I don't think anybody had quite seen that in him before. It wasn't that he was not a very good player, but he, he'd never never thrived like that. But also, it was all played out against the backdrop of the court case that was you know was kind of hovering and, and waiting for, for him and Woodgate. But you know I know people, journalists who covered that period and covered the, the run of Champions League games, and they all say that he was the driving force in it. Kuehl might have been the best player, as, as Nigel Martin says, but it was Boyer who seemed to come up with the inspiration time and again. And he would have been brilliant under Bielsa because he just seemed to have an engine that never ran out of petrol. Matty always talked about him being nine stone wet, you know, really skinny, really slight, and could just run all day, despite the fact that he loved the drink, he loved the smoke and everything else. He was just a complete machine and, and a total athlete. And it, you'd, uh, I would defy anybody to leave him out of this eleven. Um, who else is in your midfield? Well, this is probably the dif- the most difficult call. Do you go for Batty or do you go for Calvin Phillips? You go for Batty, don't you? I think so. I didn't. Okay. Did you not? Mm. Did you go for Phillips? I did. Uh, this is very much hinged upon Bielsa managing this team as well because I I'm not sure if Batty fits in quite as well as Calvin Phillips in that role. But it's possibly just because I've not seen it, and I also think Bielsa would probably have Batty as a centre back or something. <laughs> Something ridiculous. Do, do you remember? Do you remember the story? Um, Hayden Evans, is, about his agent, was telling us about Wilkinson saying to him on certain days, "Look, take this bag of balls and fuck off because you just <laughs> you're contributing nothing and you're being a pain in the neck." I mean, I just I just cannot imagine in a million years Bielsa finding a way to tolerate him in in quite the same way. But then maybe Batty would have been different with Bielsa. Maybe he would he would have understood that the the relationship was kind of a bit more strict and that it had to be, be a bit more deferential. I think Batty was too good a player to leave out of this. Again, we should revisit this in a year or potentially if we're all still alive, we should revisit this in 10 and work out at that stage, which of the lineups we looked at now, how it would merge into a strongest 11 and, and which of the players under Bielsa have gone on to be as good as or better than the, the players who were in that, that Aleri team. I think Phillips has the potential to do that without any question. But I think as it stands at the moment, and this is this kind of reflects on the, the, the infancy that, that Bielsa's squad are in. 
at the moment, I think you have to go for have to go for Batty. You say I'm pessimistic if we're all still alive in 10 years. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's I quite, do hope so. That's quite optimistic, is it? Not looking at the state of us all sat right here. Yeah. I did, I did also go, <laughs> go for Phillips based upon having seen him a lot more than David Batty because I, I came to Leeds before after David Batty's first spell. So it was based on a, a more limited period of, of games in his second spell. So I kind of missed the... The early early batty years. It doesn't look like any of us have managed to shave in about ten days. So, what's the chances of Phil surviving the next ten years? Ten years. No, I'm I'm just uh, I'm just hoping that Bielsa's still here in ten years. That's the only thing that's going to keep me going. Mm. Otherwise, bring on the darkness. <laughs> um, who else in midfield? I've gone for decor next to Batty. Really, really classy midfielder. I, I think what Leeds really liked about him was that he could do a lot of what Batty did and could really stick his foot in. But he had that bit of finesse I, I actually think that Batty did as well I think Batty was an underrated passer and, and game manager he wasn't all about the big hits much as he much as he loved them but Decor was yeah re- really silky likeable midfielder somebody who was was pleasing on the eye but I, I almost think like the perfect player for Leeds combative but skillful and that mix is, is kind of ideal here he was just about my favourite player in that Champions League side's just shading it from Viduka, I think. I just, I just really liked his dynamism midfield. He just, he had some real quality about him. And when he, when he signed, you could really see we levelled up. He was saying as well that him and Batty hardly spoke, and not because they didn't get on, but just because they didn't. They're just never particularly close, and I don't think it was very easy to be close to to Batty anyway. But he said they understood each other brilliantly when they when they played. You know, dovetailed really nicely. I mean, Martin was saying to me that he used to room with Batty from time to time, and Batty would say to him. I know I'm friends with you now, but you'll never see me after football. I won't be, keep, won't be keeping in touch. And and Martin said to, to give him his due, he's been as good as his words. You know, so it wasn't as if it was just it was just bravado. But I mean, what I always find this with Batty when you get on to talking about him, the stories are great. Martin was talking about this time where he got this stinking back pass from from Batty, so he had to just hoof the ball out for um for a throw in, and he, he gave Batty a few verbals, and and Batty looked at him and said, sniffed and said. Pass completion rate. And they just walked <laughs> walked away. Absolute <laughs> psychopath, David Batty. In, in, nice in the way that that he did. So I don't think Decor ever <laughs> sort of worked him out as a as a personality, but loved playing with him. I think the two of them just they were, br- they they were just, brilliant in that midfield. They were brilliant. And if you watch the the footage of that night, actually the uh, Deportivo night, they absolutely ran that midfield. They were fantastic. That, you can tell that they loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. I mean, Martin reckoned that Batty would have had no idea who he was playing against. He, he and he wouldn't have cared either. No, he, that's what he said. He said if if uh, O'Leary had said to him, these are the players you're, you're coming up against in the Deportivo midfield, he just shrugged his shoulders and said, whatever. Somebody else to kick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah basically, whoever it is. <laughs> Love that man. Because when, when Martin comes out of the tunnel, he's got this nervous grin on his face. You know, he looks really kind of on edge in a, in a good way. And he, t- he glances over his shoulder at Batty, who's just got this massive smile on his face. And he's just thinking, excellent, loving this. You know? <laughs> right, give us your other midfielder. I'm going to go for Rafinha on the left. There is a reason for this, as will we'll become apparent. But he, in flashes this season, has looked so, so good that I think he would make that team. I think, I think as he goes on, he would make the team comfortably. But even at the moment, I think you definitely want him in it. So presumably that leads to Harry Kuehl playing off the striker. It does. I don't know if that's a good idea or a good move, but there's no way you can can leave him out. As I say, they, the players back then all thought of him as the most skillful player, as the player who, who unlocked the door, kind of key going forward. And Martin always said that he noticed with Batty that whenever Batty got the ball, won the ball, the first pass was always to Kuehl because it, it's, it's like what Calvin Phillips was saying to me when I interviewed him after promotion about when he gets possession Back then, I mean, I know it's changed now, but back then he always looked for Hernandez because... Pass it to Pablo. Absolutely, yeah. that was the ball and that was what was going to make a difference and it was Pablo who was going to come up with the best passes from that point and start start ripping the opposition open. And the same with Kuehl. Kuehl was brilliant in that period and again, check her reputation now. And there'll be people who want to leave him out on the basis of that, but I suspect deep down... Everybody will be picking him. Oh yeah. Even if they don't, even yeah. if they don't admit to it, I think everybody will know that he. If if you if you were in that dressing room beforehand and you had those twenty two players and it was European Cup quarter final and you wanted to progress, you would a hundred percent put him. In Leaving the out all the other stuff, he's one of the most naturally talented footballers I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Alan Road. He was he was brilliant. I mean, Michael had a QL nineteen shirt. It's the Lazio blue shirt, isn't it? That you can't wear. It is, yeah, yeah. Kiel nineteen. When did you when one. did you burn that? <laughs> I've still got. I can't. I can't throw it away. I love the shirt as well. It's just the 
just the back of it that's a bit of an issue. Maybe I can wear it with an open hoodie or something <laughs> unzipped at the front. If you put it through the wash enough, the numbers normally come off the back. Yeah, but they leave the outline, don't they? So you'd be walking around with evidence of your uh, misdemeanor. Yeah, better just to be brazen about it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a brilliant footballer without doubt. So who's your striker? It's Mark Viduka. Yeah. Mark Viduka. Again, no offence to Bamford, no offence to Alan Smith, but Viduka was really, really in his prime at that point. Unbelievable finisher. By no means Bielsa's idea of a all-action <laughs> centre-forward who would chase everything and run, run the channels. But it'd, be again, inter- it'd be interesting to see once he'd been through a Bielsa pre-season, if he actually made it through alive, what his physique would be like. Because he was always a barrel a barrel of a man was Viduka. But he was very athletic with it as well. Well, there are probably players in that Aliri lineup that even Bielsa might not have been able to make significantly better. So Kuehl, for example, just had that extreme natural talent. And I suspect with somebody like Batty as well, Batty just was the player that he was and you either took it or you got rid of it. And and that was it. Um, but with Viduka, the finishing was always there. I, I saw it at Celtic before before he came down to Leeds and he used to score for fun in, in Scotland and was much the same And when he came down to the the Premier League. But I think Bielsa could probably have added strands to his game if indeed you wanted to add strands to his game. But there is, again, a bit like Harry Kuehl, you can't admit him. It's just not, there's no rationale for doing that. He was brilliant, wasn't he? He was, and it's strange we talk about his physique, but I remember, I was, I was probably about 14, 15, and seeing Mark Viduka in Costco, and they think he was always a bit fat and a bit lazy. When you see him amongst normal people, it looked like an absolute Adonis. He was he was just massive and muscular and very impressive looking. But see him on a football pitch, went lazy fat bastard. What's he doing? <laughs> well, yeah, that, it was very much on the caveat of of him having a Bielsa preseason was with him getting in the team. But yeah, he's he's the obvious striker. He was brilliant. Well, that's what Windass used to do at Bradford. I I did a bit of coverage of Bradford before I started doing Leeds at the Evening Post. Yeah, thoughts and, and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Yes, and uh, Windass would always get hammered by whichever set of away fans were turning up. And all he used to do was just pull his shirt up and show them this massive six-pack. And he'd go, all oh, right, yeah, okay, fair enough, yeah, you win. Uh, right then, so that's your 11. Let's have a look through them then. In goal, Nigel Martin. At right back, Luke Ayling. Centre-halves, Rio Ferdinand and Champions League, Liam. Interesting one, that one. I think that's probably the most contentious. Ian Hart at left-back. Now, into midfield, in front of Ian Hart, you've got Rafinha. I do fear for how exposed we might get down that side if Rafinha's in front of Ian Hart. He knows how to track back Rafinha. It's not bad on that yeah. front. I, mean, I just imagine him glowering at Ian Hart in disappointment because he can't how, move. How good was Harry Kuehl defensively? You'll need to tell me. It's, no, it's a fair point. It is a fair point. Your midfield then, Rafinha on the left with the core and Batty in the middle, Boya on the right and your forward to Kuehl playing just off Viduka. Where are the fights going to come with this? Cooper? Mm. Phillips? Well, I mean, I think with Cooper, you're only... Viable alternatives are Matteo or Llorente. And as Michael said, it's a really small sample size with Llorente. He's looked very good, don't get me wrong. But we're not at the point where we've had two seasons of him and and you know that the consistency is there. I suspect it will be. And then there will be people who desperately want to get Phillips in the team. But as I say, I, I don't feel like you can play Phillips and Batty in a midfield too. I went a bit off-piste in the midfield and I ended up sticking Lee Bowie behind the striker. Well, that was another option, yeah. And and if we did that, then you could have Rafinha on the right and um, Harry Kuehl on the left, that which would thinking. actually be more yeah. balanced, yeah. Yeah, mm. I, was, I was going Good down shout. that route, yeah. And then I went for Decor and Phillips in midfield because I, I remember the kind of early Bielsa days when he had Forshaw in the same in the team and I thought those two could operate in a, a similar way and give it like a, a bit of stability there in midfield. But What about you, Daniel? Yeah, I, I didn't actually put together a, a final 11. I found it too stressful. Um, <laughs> you dick. I know, like, <laughs> But, We've got, I've got about 48 hours of moaning coming over the weekend. There's not even a game for me to hate behind. I do wonder, just as a final point, where does peak Pablo Hernandez fit into this? I don't think he quite makes it. I don't think he does. He'd absolutely be on the bench. But if you were playing Boya or Harry Kuehl in behind Viduka, would you drop either of them for Hernandez? And that really is where Hernandez has to play. Difficult one, that. Difficult one, that. But I think... Bear in mind that we've seen Hernandez in the championship and he has been he's been absolutely magical at his best, better than magical really. Um but you're talking about two players who at the peak were almost untouchable at Ellen Road. I, I think it would have been tough to have squeezed them in there. It's Liverpool at home on Monday night, which should have been one of the fixtures of the season. It feels like it's probably moved to being slightly more low key than it was when we faced them on the opening day. Probably a reflection of um, of what's happened to them this season. Do you think this is the same Liverpool side that we faced on the opening day? I didn't think the Liverpool side that we faced on the opening day were horrifically impressive. Bielsa thought they deserved to win, and I think he was right. They had more of the game. 
it felt to me like you were seeing more of the the kind of rustiness or the fatigue, if we want to use that word, and we probably shouldn't, but that it developed in the Premier League running. You know where the title was done for Liverpool. They they knew they were champions. And it, it all went off the boil a little bit and it didn't feel as if it was back to, to full heat at that point. They have had good periods this season. They have had spells where they looked like they were, they were going to compete strongly for the title again. But it's been really difficult for them since the turn of the year. And the, the former Anfield has dropped off a cliff and doesn't really show much sign of, of turning around significantly. You get the whole burnout myth with, I say myth, some people don't think it's a myth, but you get the burnout narrative with Bielsa. There's a, a little bit of that with Klopp as well after what went on at, at Dortmund. And they do seem like they need a massive refresh. I don't mean that they necessarily need a new coach or need a, a total overhaul in the, the transfer market, but they do look as if they need somebody to press the reset button somehow and, and get them back to the, the team that they were. Tactically, it isn't working in the same way as it was for Klopp, and it doesn't feel to me like he's making significant changes there in the way that I don't think Bielsa would. You know, I think Bielsa would just stick stick to the plan and, and try and try and make it happen. But this is a hugely important game for them because they're, they're out of the Champions League now, and they have to finish fourth. Otherwise, it's it's going to cause problems and it's going to going to set them back. The difficulty is that down at West Ham, for example, you could imagine. The sort of tingle about the thought of qualifying for the Champions League and, and finishing fourth is is something big to go for. At Liverpool, it's an obligation. And while it is important and they'll know it's important, it doesn't conjure the same kind of enthusiasm in you at all. They'll be knowing that they, they have to finish fourth to, to clear the lowest benchmark for them. And, and if they don't, there's going to be a lot of criticism of the players and of Klopp as well. Because it's asking a lot to win two titles back to back when you've got City improving as they have and and Guardiola with the squad that he's got. But to drop off in the way that they have from season to season has been pretty spectacular. Do you think it's fair to say that Liverpool only won the league because of COVID and the break that they were able to get? A, a little bit like, a little <laughs> bit like Leeds. Yeah. That's, that's not loaded at all, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but do you think it's just injuries or is there something else at play there? Like that sort of malaise that after the Lord Mayor's parade, if you like. It definitely hasn't helped. I, I don't think the malaise was necessarily there straight after the start of the season. It didn't feel like it in quite the same way, but they've missed Van Dijk hugely. They've suffered from other injuries in, in that position. They've suffered from the fact that they didn't get around to doing anything about it recruitment-wise until the very end of, of January. And, and actually, I'm not yet sure if what they've done would make enough of a difference to convert that defence back to what it was when Van Dijk was in it. And I think because of that, I think because the results have turned the malaise has crept in. I, th- I think there'll be a, quite a despondent mood over there. They'll be very, very disappointed with the way they've they've competed in most of the competitions they've been in. And poor form does have that effect on you. It does, mm. especially when you're defending champions. Where's the enthusiasm for this season? What What is there to, to gain from it? As I say, they can still qualify for the Champions League, but they'll be knowing that even if they do, people will say, well, that is absolutely the least that should have been delivered this year. And there'll be a lot of, chat in the background and a lot of thought about what they need to do now, now that the, the next window is about to come around and not necessarily a huge amount of cash to spend either. I mean, this window is going to be interesting in the sense that I don't think anybody is going to have a you know a ridiculous budget and what you'll have is a, a load of clubs who want players, but a load of clubs who don't want to spend vast amounts and a lot of clubs who don't want to sell at a low price, but almost feel obliged to. It's going to be quite difficult to manoeuvre in if you're a side that needs a bit of a an overhaul. I don't think Liverpool do need a massive overhaul. I think there are still lots of very, very good players there, but something definitely needs to change. And you wonder if no Champions League puts a bit of a squeeze or a further squeeze, if you like, on their finances, because it doesn't strike me that their owners are particularly you know, inclined towards spending huge amounts of money because they've been rumoured to be after Rodrigo de Paul. So you do wonder if maybe if they haven't got quite as much money that if that opens the door for another club. Like Napoli, who I yeah, saw you tweeting exactly, about earlier this exactly. week. Yeah. Swines, leave, every, him, leave him alone. Every time you you appear on my timeline on Twitter, I'm kind of facepalming at home going, oh no, what, what is this now? But no, I mean, if they don't get into the Champions League, then it will it will affect yeah. the finances. There's no, no two ways about that. It, it's a fact. And I think that now will be the, the focus for them. So this this is a huge game for them because they, they are probably only one more little slump away from not being able to do it. You know, I think if they if they have a run of three or four games where they drop off again and, and where points go begging, then it's going to be extremely difficult for them to take fourth place. And, th- and that's when the big questions will be asked. But let's not underestimate them because they are still a very hugely talented side. So we can't uh, rest on our laurels because I think this is when 
Leeds become our own worst enemies when we start to expect things this season. These games have taken a slightly odd shape as well, haven't they? Because if it was tight at the top, I don't think Guardiola would have fielded the team that he did on Saturday. That was definitely picked with an eye on on Dortmund on Wednesday night. And given that they beat Dortmund and are through at the semi-finals, I think when he reflects on it, he'll be quite happy with the week as it's gone. You know, no damage done in the Premier League. And onwards, onwards in, in Europe... This Liverpool game, I was expecting them to be in much better fettle than this. And there is something riding on it because obviously Liverpool are going for fourth place and Leeds aren't totally out of the running for Europe either. And the same will be true when we come round to Manchester United. You know, They are going to finish second, but they're not going to win the title. And realistically, you don't think that Leicester are, are going to get beyond them. I half expected that this could be a period of the season where Leeds would have a particularly keen influence on what was going on in the table and potentially keen influence in some some pretty big battles and it isn't really working out that way but they're still fascinating fixtures and I'm really really looking forward to Liverpool at home because I think Leeds have got a serious chance What about Adam Forshaw? Does he make an appearance? Well there's a chance that Forshaw will play for the 23s against Aston Villa and if he plays for the 23s against Aston Villa and he is fine and he has no after effects then as is the case with Bielsa he will either go on to another under 23s game or very quickly he'll come into first-team contention, which would be a a really, really symbolic step for him because, he, like Bielsa said the other week, he's basically missed two seasons as Forshaw. He's been out for 18 months um, and given that they're getting pretty close to the summer, you'd be talking pretty much two years in between competitive appearances. Bielsa has such a high opinion of Forshaw. I always say this, but it stuck in my head in the first summer uh, when Bielsa was here, him saying that Forshaw had been his his best player and he sees, in, in the same way as he does talks about Cleek, you know, being able to play for some of the best teams in the world. I think he actually feels similar things about Forshaw as well. I think he sees a lot of talent there and sees ways in which he could be really influential in his team. But after so long out, it's really hard for anybody to be sure of what Forshaw's influence or or contribution is going to be from here going forward. So it'll still be softly, softly, and it'll still be gently, gently. But I don't think it's been softly, softly or gently, gently from Forshaw in training, he sounds like he, he really is flying. The, the reason that they're cautious is because they've kind of been here before. Is Forshaw a Liverpool fan? I know he's in the Everton Academy as a youngster, wasn't he? But I'm, I'm absolutely certain he's a red, yeah. Yeah, I think he is, so he'd, he'd be chuffed a bit if he could Fairy be Fairytale comeback. Predictions for this then. I fancy a draw for this. I think it might be a draw. Yeah, I think Leeds can take something from this. I think it'll depend a little bit on what sort of mindset Liverpool are in and, and whether... Klopp's managed to kind of wipe away the, the disappointment of the, the defeat to Real Madrid. But I do think I do think Leeds can get at them. I do think Leeds can win this. I've been burnt too many times after a good run this season and I've predicted a win. But it is strange to think there's only seven points between us now. I mean, if if after that first game, well, I guess prior to the first game, if someone had said, by the time you get to the home the home leg of this, you're gonna there's gonna be hardly anything between you, you'd have thought something had gone drastically wrong for Liverpool and amazingly right for us. And I suppose both are both are partly true, aren't they? So let's get a draw. <laughs> so reluctant to predict anything positive. Let's uh, grind it out again. Park the bus from from the first minute. It, I yeah. <laughs> Defend deep again, like our new tactics uh, say we will. Uh, one to watch as well, Phil. What's the thing we should be keeping an eye on? Well, that is my one to watch uh, defensively. I want to see how Leeds do against the front three of Manny, Salah, and um, Firmino, assuming that that they all play and bearing in mind that Salah got a hat-trick in the first game it'll be really interesting to see if, if Leeds cope a little better with him And who comes in for Liam Cooper? I would think Pascal Stroik um, given that he's left-sided and he was the player that came off the bench on Saturday that would seem like the choice Tweet us at the Phil Hay Show and subscribe right now to The Athletic for that three ninety nine a month if you're not yet involved that's for six months 40% off the full price of a sub at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds Pod we'll catch you next time The Phil Hay Show 